Hey, good morning, church. I hope that you are doing well this morning and that you have a Bible with you or maybe a phone. And um, while I'm opening here, why don't you turn to Psalm chapter 6. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to do uh, like a language immersion. Maybe you were in like French immersion or some sort of language um, overseas somewhere where you're kind of plunked into the middle of daily life with people or maybe you know with a French immersion you're just you're inundated with the language you are kind of surrounded by it in all the different parts of your day and that's not a bad thing necessarily it's actually it's actually meant to help you right it gives you so much more um, knowledge and experience with the language or with the whatever it is that you're trying to learn so that in any given circumstance you have more language to draw from because you have more experiences you're hearing it more you're trying to speak more it's just more a part of your life rather than a little bit here and there and that's the beauty of being immersed in something well we have been learning from the book of psalms and historically the book of psalms has been a point of immersion for the church it has been a part of the church's daily life you know there's much of church history where believers would use the psalms in the morning and the night they would just regularly have it be a part of their life and they would be using it constantly and um you know Nowadays, it's kind of like, you know, sermon series is like, man, four, six weeks, long enough. You don't want to go further. And and we're kind of blowing that mold up and saying, we want to like take a deeper dive. We want to take an immersive dive into the Psalms. And it may be working for some of you and it may not be working for some of you, but we're still doing it. And we're six weeks in now and um, multiple weeks in, four weeks in now to lament Psalms. And we are being immersed into this this beautiful book of the psalms and here in psalm 6 we come to another lament psalm and a psalm that finds david in a really dark place there's some verses in here where you're like wow david is down okay some of these verses are not the ones that are going to end up on you know a mug or a calendar these these are dark heavy, painful verses that really reflect the heart and the place where David is at. And they follow a, a similar pattern. And, and so the pattern of this message will sound familiar, okay? And part of that is actually there's reasoning in the Psalms for doing that, is it's that immersive idea, trying to get us to hold on and to be able to take these patterns with us. So they, they often begin with disorientation or some sort of pain or some struggle which follows then with a a petition or a prayer or a a communication with God and then ultimately it, it comes up at the end with this culmination with this a word of hope a word of God is my rescuer and there's I mean there's a couple psalms that actually they stay down okay they go there is no culmination up they stay down But for the most part, the lament psalms um, come up in hope at the end. But the majority of psalms, and we've said this before, are lament psalms. Because, I mean, I think they follow the reality of life. We all find ourselves in deep, dark places. 
And so with Psalm 6, we want to actually follow this pattern that we see in the text where there is this pain, there is this problem, followed by this prayer and petition, which ends in a provision and a word of hope. So let's begin with this word of pain. Look at Psalm chapter 6, starting in verses 1 through 3. It says this, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But how, O Lord, how long? You can hear here, you can hear in these first three verses that um, David is struggling. And, you know, at first you can't really put your finger on what the problem is. Um, seems to be in the first verses here that there is a personal issue with David, and that's actually where we're going to land. But if you look later, like at the end of the chapter, verses 8, 9, 10, he, he begins again to talk about his enemies, which is, has been a theme that's been coming up often, where there's other people um, persecuting or chasing or causing him trouble. They are chasing him. Overall, though, over history, um, people have looked at Psalm 6 and they've said Psalm 6 is actually a penitential psalm. That's, that's a word for it. There's a, there's, a, there's a theme or there's a category of psalms called penitential psalms, which are psalms where David or the person writing uh, the psalm is penitent before the Lord. They are um, repentant. They are sorry for the things that they've done, most often as a result of personal sin in their life. So the other Psalms, there's seven of them. So there's this one, Psalm 6, and then there's Psalm 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and Psalm 143. All of those Psalms, those seven Psalms, make up the penitential Psalms, which is these these prayers of repentance and penitence before God. Let me just give you a few examples just to, so you can kind of hear how this language is similar across all of them. Psalm 32 verse 1 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Look at verse, or sorry, chapter 38, verse 3 says this, There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. Psalm 51, 3 says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So even though we don't know specifically the background of what's going on in chapter 6, maybe there would be some guesses that we could make. What we do see from these verses is that David is penitent. David is feeling the weight of uh, sin, personal sin in his own life. And it's through these verses that he is actually addressing the sin and, and the struggle of sin in his own life and, and in how it's coming to affect him personally. Now listen, we live in a day and age that does not um, talk about or maybe acknowledge personal sin. Okay, so we just, we live in a time where um, we tend to make excuses for that. It tends to be either someone has been wronged and, and that wrong can be defined differently by different people. 
But in terms of the sin, what the Bible talks about, the sin in our lives, the personal sin that we commit, there's, man, there's very little room for that. There's very little talk about that. It, it might be more related to like, oh, this is your personality, you know, um, maybe you're a three or an eight on the Enneagram, and so you're more, dis, you know, you more lean towards this type of a personality, or maybe your Myers-Briggs is this way, and you're like, you're just naturally more aggressive, and so the things that you do wrong, they're just because like the way you were made, and the way that you, you know, it's just the way you are, or maybe it's the the past, you know, we, we definitely live in a uh, a victim culture, you know, where people have wronged us or wrong things have happened to us. And then we can react then sometimes with the approval of society, we can react in wrong ways to people, but we can point back to our victimhood as the source for that. And the word of God actually reminds us that that this is kind of like the natural state of human world and society. This is how it goes in Romans chapter one, where where the Apostle Paul describes um, sin and its roots. It says this in verse 32. It says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. So there's this like internal knowledge of the law of God on people's hearts. It says that they not only do them, so they go against that, even though their nature is kind of prompting them otherwise, it says they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So there's like this, uh, this willful disobedience of God's design for the world, God's you know, vision for the world, and people are kind of like affirming that. They're like, yes, just keep going, keep going. But listen, it's not just society, okay? We're not just here like pointing the finger at like that's how society is. It's us, man. Like it is us as well who find it hard to face our own sin. When our personal sin is kind of laid bare before us, it's just hard to admit it and, and own up to it. It can be the smallest things. I can think the other day even of an interaction between, you know, me and my youngest daughter, and it was related to her eating ramen. And I was just like way over the top and overly aggressive. And, and in the moment, I was like, okay, whoa, you have gone too far. And you know, had to kind of apologize for being overly aggressive. And it was like, that was difficult to do. So if, it, if it's difficult to do over ramen noodles with someone that you love, then we all know that like facing our personal sin is difficult and it's hard. And it's not just society that is, you know, approving or helping us along. It is deep down in our own hearts that makes it difficult. And so what's happening here to David is he's being faced with his personal sin. He's being faced with choices that he has made. And the result is, if you look at these verses, the result is deep pain and trouble, mentally, physically, and spiritually. All those things. Look at the text. Let me just quick, quickly you know, uh, spot a few words here that will help us understand that. In verse 2, it talks about David languishing. Okay, that idea is like kind of fading away or he's faint. He's just like no energy, no zeal for what he's involved in. This is like the result of the personal sin in his life. It's kind of this idea of, you know, plants kind of withering in the heat and just no nourishment. He's just languishing. In the second part of verse 2, it says, my bones are troubled. He's feeling it to the core of himself. Verse 3 says, my soul is also greatly troubled. So this is like 
mental state, just languishing, physical. He's actually feeling the pain of this sin that's coming out in his life. Maybe he's um, sick. Maybe there's some sort of like, you know, pain in his gut or something that's affecting his whole body. And then also his soul, right down to the core of who he is. Look all the way down at verse 6. It talks about him being weary. And every night, it says, he floods his bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. I mean, this is a guy who is seriously uh, feeling the weight and the, the strain of the circumstances around him which he is, you know, seeing is, okay, God doing something around him. Now, not everything bad that happens to us, you know, if I get a cold, that doesn't mean that, like, God is, like, doing this, bringing that, raining that down on me. No, that's not what this psalm is saying. But it is showing that through David's, you know, mental, physical, spiritual struggle, um, his attention has been had from the personal um, sin that he is facing, the, the mercy that he so desperately needs. C.S. Lewis uh, once wrote this um, when talking about or, or quoting the Puritans. He said, the Puritans felt that the true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. Okay, we, we don't talk about it like that anymore. But basically they were saying, we need to be aware of the sin that is in our own lives, right down into our inner cesspool. Romans 7, 24 says this. This is Paul speaking about his own sinfulness. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so this feeling of the weight and the, the personal angst that comes with sin is the feeling that David is trying to express here in words in this psalm, this psalm chapter 6. And that, that feeling of, you know, the, the feeling of the weight or the consequence of personal sin in our life um, is not always a bad thing, okay? Now, there, there might be times where we are um, feeling guilt or shame that we should not be feeling. There can be times where people can um, manipulate what they're saying so that people will feel guilt, or maybe we're just misreading what's even going around us, uh, going on around us. I remember one time uh, a neighbor friend came to, to church with us, and after, you know, she wasn't a believer, but she, you know, just kind of shared after. She's like, wow, it was really nice, you know, it was so many friendly people. And I think even that Sunday there was a choir. She was like, the choir was beautiful. She's like, even the message was good, kind of had some good pointers for life. And then she added, and she said, and it just had a little bit of guilt in it. Okay, and I don't know what she was feeling, but whatever she was feeling, it wasn't the kind of guilt that it can be a good guilt. You know, guilt that actually comes from wrongs that we've done. It was more just like a feeling that she had or something that she had sensed. But we know that the Word of God actually tells us that this feeling of sin in our lives is not always a bad thing. It's actually the work of God around us. In John 16, when Jesus is, is telling his disciples, there's going to be a time where I'm going to be going back to the Father, he tells him that this, the Holy Spirit will be coming and he has a work to do. Now listen to what he says. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, 
It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So here's part of the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is the helper. So when he reveals to believers personal sin and, and he you know, shines that light on that, you know, what the Puritans called that inner cesspool, that is actually a, a good thing. It's, it's a helper. It's a help to us. And so that's to us as believers. But then also to the world around us, it says this in verse 8 of John 16. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's also part of what the Holy Spirit's going to do. So he's going to help believers, but he's also going to be going around the world, convicting the world of sin and, and, you know, revealing to them the fact that God is coming to judge. And, and ultimately, we see in Romans, Paul makes it clear that that works in association with the Word of God. So when the Word of God goes out, the Holy Spirit is able to work and convicts people of sin. And so for the, the world that is not believing, the Holy Spirit is at work. And for believers as well, this interpersonal sin conviction is actually the Holy Spirit, the helper working. And this is what David is experiencing. And, and I don't know if it's, it's the result of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament um, working of the Holy Spirit is different than the New Testament. So I don't know if David was actually experiencing, you know, some work of the Holy Spirit in his life, or if it just came from the experience and the pain that he was going through. But what David is experiencing actually is the weight of personal sin. And so what does he do with that? And what should we do about that? There's, there's a lot that we could say about that, but we're going to follow the text here. Okay, we're going to see what it has to say to us. And what David does is what we've seen multiple times already is David prays. There is a petition. So point one is there's the pain, and here is the petition or the prayer. Look at verses four and five. Verse four says this, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? So David in this moment turns to God and he says, God, I need help. And like I just said, we have been looking at these Psalms for six weeks now and we've seen the regular pattern of David or the, you know, any of the psalmists that are writing this regular pattern of turning to God. And so it's like, it's like an athlete that is trained, you know, in a few weeks come the Olympics and it's like an athlete that is trained and, and is just used to doing whatever needs to be done. You know, he's, he's practiced that run or she has practiced that pole vault, whatever the thing is, like thousands of times so that when it comes time in the Olympics to actually do it, there's not actually a lot of thinking. It is just, I have done this, I have practiced it, I am doing it. And that's what these Psalms are trying to help us to do over and over and over again. You're in trouble. What do you do? Turn to God in prayer. Oh, here's another circumstance of trouble and difficulty. What am I supposed to do? I turn to God in prayer. It is this regular habit that becomes a reality when difficulty comes before us. And so David prays. And what kind of prayer does he pray? He prays what I'm calling a God-centered prayer. Now, the, the reason we know that is if you look at this whole chapter and you just take a quick glance, your Bible should have in there the, the small little phrase, O Lord, Lord all capitalized. That is the word Yahweh. 
That's the word for God. And you'll see it shows up eight times. In these ten verses, it shows up eight times. So David is just focusing his attention and the attention of this psalm in the midst of his difficulty on Yahweh, God. He is putting this prayer as a God-centered prayer. Now, maybe you're asking, aren't all prayers God-centered prayers? Well, actually, they're not, okay? There's, there's a type of prayer that is not God-centered at all. It is personally centered. And a beautiful example of that is found in Luke chapter 18. It's this story of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying before God. And this is, you know, Jesus trying to wake up his audience to, you know, the religious mindset a religious way of doing things where, you know, religion actually points to you as the center, not to God, or a God-centered mindset. And it says this in Luke 18, verse 11. It says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other man, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So you see here in this parable, in this story, Jesus is saying there are two ways of praying here. One that is man-centered, self-centered. You know, the person is the, the actual center of that prayer or a God-centered prayer. And David here is putting himself in the position of the tax collector, of a God-centered prayer, where throughout this word, he is crying out to God, saying, will you help me? Will you provide a way for me? God, I need your help. God, you are the only one who can do this. He is crying out to God. He is not focusing solely on himself. It's actually a God-centered prayer. And so what he does then is this, um, he essentially pleads to God to act. Plea as in P-L-E-A. It's a plea. He is, he is asking, he is begging that God would act. C.H. Spurgeon said this, whether you like it or not, asking is the rule of the kingdom. That's great. Whether you like it or not, Asking is the rule of the kingdom. So we are encouraged, we are modeled here in this text to ask, to put our dependence in our prayers and in our trouble, to put our rest and our hope in God. James chapter 4 verse 2 says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is not this, that your passions are, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James, saying, James is saying, listen, this is what is happening. You are striving for something. You're trying to grab what you can to solve your problems. And he's saying, you need to ask. You need to turn to God and ask. And then he says in verse 3 here, James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passion. So he's saying that your motivation also makes a difference. And then all the way down to verse 10, he kind of gives the answer as to like what should be behind your prayers. It's this, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Coming to God in humility, knowing that 
at the center of my prayers, the, the solution to my problems, the solution to the trouble that's around me is actually God. And this is what David is doing in this prayer. David is feeling the weight of his problems and the, and the pain of the sin in his own life. And now he comes to God in this prayer. And, and the prayer is a prayer filled with humility. And it's a plea. It's a plea for God to help and to work, you know, despite the, the issues that are happening around him. And so God is at the center of his prayer. It is motivated by God actually doing something. And it is expectant. You know, it's, it's a plea for help, but it is expectant that God can actually do something. So this leads us to the, to the last point here, which is the provision. So the pain, the petition, and the provision. Look at verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. So God actually provides through answering his prayer. But listen, there can be a temptation for us as believers. Probably all of us have had this to want our own way even when it comes to the prayers that we ask. And usually it's that we want them solved quickly right? So we've got a problem. We've got some pain. We go to God in prayer. Maybe it's even God-centered prayer. It's not focused on us. It is focused on what God is doing around us. And we say, God, we need your help. Could you please answer that prayer? Like, this evening would be fine, you know? Or tomorrow morning, I'll assume that it's going to be answered by then. But even within this psalm, we see that sometimes God answers quickly, and sometimes God takes his time. Look at this, verse 3. Look at what David says. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How long do I have to wait, God? It's just kind of like a cliffhanger. The prayers are out there, God. I'm waiting, I'm waiting. How long? Is it going to happen next month? Is it going to happen next year? I mean, I'm sure there's some of you who are listening who have been praying for things for multiple years. Praying for things for multiple years, waiting on God, expecting even. C.S. Lewis again says this, Every war, every famine or plague, almost every deathbed is the monument to a petition that was not granted. So all of us can look at something in our life and say, Man, I was asking for that. And now it's like this marker where I'm seeing it's not answered. And that can be really hard for us to take. But J.I. Packer helps, or at least he helped me with this quote. He says this, God fixes our prayers on the way up. If he does not answer the prayer we made, he will answer the prayer we should have made. This is all anyone needs to know. So J.I. Packer doesn't mince for words, right? He's saying the prayers that we make, the pleas that we have before God, we want them answered now. But there are times where, like David, we say, God, how long? And actually in the process, God is answering. God is giving the right, you know, the right way forward for whatever it is before us. But we want something else. And so the wait is hard. But sometimes... It also is that we find that God answers our prayers in a moment. So look at verse 10. 
It says, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. It's just like, boom, it's happened. I've prayed, I've made my pleas before God, and it has happened. There has been a miracle that has just gone on. You know, whether it is someone gets saved or a problem is solved, the, the prayer gets answered in a moment. In both cases, God is fully in charge. God has heard our pleas. I mean, that is clear in the text that we see here that David says, God has heard me. In the midst of my trouble, I know that he has heard me. I have confidence. And whether it is solved in years, how long, or in a moment, God still answers. And ultimately, David's true request that God would be merciful to him is answered. What David deeply longed for is God's mercy. And he says with confidence that he has experienced this hope now. And, and David, again, is, is looking forward. He has no idea about Jesus and the life that he's going to live in the first century in a Roman world. David doesn't know any of that kind of stuff, but he puts his hope in what God is going to do. And, and we as believers, we put our hope in God's mercy in the finished work of Jesus. So we know that God's mercy happens through Jesus. David knows it's going to happen through some sort of Savior, a Messiah, some sort of Savior is coming. We know the Savior's name. The Savior's name is Jesus. And so that guilt that David is experiencing, that trouble, the pain of his sin, is actually something that all of us do have or, you know, should be feeling before God because we have all broken God's law. We have all done God wrong. And so we stand before this God also, like David, pleading for mercy. We see the wreckage of the world around us, either the world that, you know, the society that we live in, or even in the, the, the wreckage of our own lives at different times, and it faces us. It's, it comes right before us, and we also plea for God's mercy, and he gives it to us. In Matthew 26, there's, you know, this beautiful story of Jesus going to the cross. And it's a story that in many ways mirrors David's own experience. So Jesus also experiences sleepless nights and tears and pain. His enemies are also chasing him. And, and Jesus feels sorrow and, and trouble and has accusers that are after him and, and people who are abandoning him. He, feel, he experiences all these things like David experiences. The, the greatest difference, though, is that David is experiencing many of these things from his enemies and as the result of sin in his own life that is kind of compounded. And Jesus is not experiencing this because of any sin in his own life. He willingly chooses to go down this road of sorrow trouble and pain for the purpose of giving to us the free gift of salvation. The mercy that we so desperately long for, Jesus gave up so that he could go through the deepest, darkest, tear-filled night so that we could have the mercy of God. Colossians 2.13 says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
our guilt, which is right before God, the, the sin that we were born into, was taken and was nailed to the cross. We are free now because of that. And so as, as Christians, when we feel guilt and we feel pain, our calling is to turn to the cross. Let me conclude with this little story. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Mission, but in that movie, Robert De Niro is this mercenary and he's kind of, he willingly kills people and he, he kidnaps, um, you know, natives from the jungle to make them slaves. And he's just like a kind of a rotten character and he gets saved in the process. And to kind of, you know, fight off his, his, his history and his mistakes, he drags this giant bag of armor, you know, all the way up a, a waterfall, up a river to kind of pay penance for the wrong that he's done. Trying to, you know, make right the things that he had done wrong. He works, you know, he has this weight on his shoulders. But by the end of the movie, you see that uh, when trouble comes his way, when difficulty comes again, he actually grabs his sword again and, and goes right back to his old lifestyle of killing and fighting and, you know, back to the wrongs of his past. Nothing had actually changed. All he had done is penance for his sins. He had done nothing that would actually put him in, in the position of penitence before God. Our calling is not to do things so that God will make us right. There's nothing that we can drag along that will kind of release us from the wrongs that we've done. The only thing that gives us freedom and releases us from the sin that we, you know, that weighs us down is the cross of Christ. And it's the grace of God, the mercy of God before us. And then when that happens, when we enter into God's mercy and we say, God, there is nothing I can do. I'm totally dependent on you. Then the accusations from Satan, the accusations from those around us who would point to sins in our life, Christ would say, that stuff does not weigh you down anymore. You are free, like that, those verses in Colossians. You are free because all of that has been set aside, nailed to the cross. It's the grace of God alone. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much for your grace in our lives. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. We are undeserving, and in our sin we stand guilty before you. But like David, we pray, Lord, that we would respond to the weight of sin and its pain that it, that it brings on us, and that we would um, put all of our hope and our trust in you. And I just pray, Lord, right now, even if someone is listening and they've not put their trust in you, Lord, they have not put their hope in you alone. I pray that they would do that. Lord, even this morning in their heart of hearts, would they see their sin and look to the Savior and put their trust in him and in him alone to give them the grace and the mercy they need to someday sit in your presence as free people worshiping you all because of the work of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.